before I ask the Lord for help, I have two requests for the members of Bethlehem. Number one, uh, would you pray for Noel and me as we go to Australia um, Sunday, tomorrow for you and today for those who are watching this on the video uh, for a couple of weeks, and both of us will be speaking. And uh, would you ask that God do a miracle, a jet lag miracle? <laughs> Number two, would you generously, sacrificially, and joyfully give? I'm talking to members through the rest of August and into the fall. The needs are great at the church, and God is able to meet every need. Let's pray. So, Father, we love you and your Son. Your Holy Spirit has come into our lives and inclined us away from the treasures of the world so that we can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, and live our lives sold for you. So come now, open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf, grant that we would see Christ and hear his word and that the lost would be found and the dead spiritually would come alive and that your saints would know you more, love you more deeply, follow you more closely, be more bold in their witness. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, up until now in chapter 10, Jesus has been unfolding um, a figure of speech. Verse 6 is where he calls, John calls it that. The, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. So this figure of speech has a sheepfold in it, and it has Jesus as the door, Jesus as the good shepherd, um, there are sheep in the fold of Israel, and there are other sheep that are outside the fold that the shepherd intends to bring. He intends to lay down his life for the sheep. He intends to sovereignly take his life back from the stomach of death. I had written in my manuscript, Jaws, and I said, it was way deeper than Jaws. He was all the way down, he was all the way dead, and as all the way dead, he just took his life again, back into this world never to die again. They will follow him. The end will be one flock and one shepherd enjoying eternal life together in the hand of God, never able to be taken out, complete safety, complete joy. That's the, the word picture that he's been unpacking in these verses and some of the ones that we will see. And he has said plainly enough many things about himself that have lifted partly the veil of his deity so that some are saying he's insane. Remember that? Verse 20, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Which is an understandable response. A human being that says, I can give myself up to death, and when I feel like it after I die, I can 
take my life back again, you would say there's something wrong with his head. So it's understandable that they would call him insane. He's, he's just lifted enough of who he is as to cause a good bit of conflict and trouble. Now, I don't know how much time has gone by between verse 21 and 22. I doubt very much has gone by. Jesus had come up to Jerusalem in chapter 7 at the Feast of Booths. It is now, according to verse 22, the Feast of Dedication. That's two months. But we don't have any idea how the events from 7, 8, 9, and 10 were falling out, whether they were one stream or time elapsed in between. And therefore, for all I know, this could be one day or hours. And the reason I don't think it's very much is because in verses 22 to 42, he's picking it up where he left off. It's the same picture, and it's the same issues referring back to the sheep. Let me give you the big picture of 22 to 42, and then we'll go and take it in five steps. Here's what I see going on in, in these verses. Jesus is walking in the temple, it says, and then according to verse 24, the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, that means Messiah, long hope for one, going to bring in the kingdom. If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. In other words, we don't like figures of speech. This is confusing. Just give us some plain, flat-out, non-imaginary speech. Tell us plainly that you are the Messiah. And then, when he tells them, he goes way beyond Messiah in what he says about himself. And they're about to kill him. They take up stones because they accuse him of blasphemy for what he said. And he uses a maneuver, an exegetical maneuver to keep himself from being stoned. It's not his hour. Stoning was not the appointed way he would die. And they're about to do it, and he maneuvers to get himself time. And in that time, he gives one last invitation to his adversaries. And then they try to seize him, and he's gone. And you would think that would be the end of the story, okay? There's Jerusalem, unbelieving. And the story ends before you get to chapter 11 with Lazarus, with this little snapshot of Jesus on the other side of the Jordan where John the Baptist was serving once upon a time, and many came to faith. 
and then the chapter's over. So that's the big picture, okay? Now let's step back, and uh, I'll tell you what I want you to watch for, and then I'll tell you the five divisions, and we'll walk through it. Watch for these things. Um, Watch for what will be a huge, if you see it, a huge impact on your life. Number one, who is this? And I don't mean for you believers to say, well, I already know who he is, so that must be for somebody else. No, you don't know fully who he is. Every time you read the Gospels, if you have eyes to see, there's more. I promise you, there is more. So, for believers, be asking, what what more can I know of him? My Lord, my Savior, I want to know you. And if he's not, ask, well, who are you anyway? I'd like to know the truth. The second thing I would like you to watch for is how does who he is affect the way he loves you, cares for you. Because there's something really interesting in the way he reveals his greatness. And he reveals it in relationship to how he loves you and how he cares for you. They aren't separate things, who he is and what he does for you. So watch for that. Third, ask Is there still time for me, or is it too late, too late to welcome him, too late to start your pilgrimage with him, because there is something remarkable in his patience in this text that I'm going to want you to see. So be on the alert. Is it too late? I mean, was it too late for them? I mean, those Jews had pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. Is it too late for them? And lastly, watch for a key to faith. In other words, I I think John wants us to see in in this little snapshot of on the other side of the Jordan, not just that lots of people believed over there, they didn't believe here in Jerusalem, but they believed over there. Why? There's a key in that little two verses. There's a key. And if you had the key, you could unlock riches of faith in your life or even get started. Okay, so those are the things I suggest you watch for. Here are the five steps we're going to take to walk through the text. Number one, Jesus' answer to their question, are you the Christ, show us plainly, verses 25 to 30. Second, their response to Jesus' answer, verses 31 to 33. Third, Jesus' maneuver out of their stoning by a use of the Psalms, verses 34 to 36. Fourth, the final invitation verses 37 to 39, and finally, number five, the key to faith, verses 40 to 42. That's where we're going. Number one, Jesus' answer, verses 25 to 
to 30. So here, here we're at verse 24. If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus says, I told you. Stop. In other words, that's what the figure of speech was about. The door. I'm the door. The good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I, just like Isaiah 53 says, will lay down my life for the sheep. I am gathering a people. Sovereignly, they will come. I am the Messiah. I told you. I told you. And then he says, verse 25, second part of that, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So not only have I told you, I've shown you. And it's the way it always is with Jesus. Don't, don't split this up in the Gospels. As you read the Gospels, don't carve this up. Don't try to say word peace, deed peace. He's a both and Messiah. It, the, the word alone doesn't have the power, and the deed alone doesn't have the clarity. You want clarity? Word, deed, word, deed, watch me, listen to me. It's the combination, it's the, it's the whole me. It's the sermon. If you it, do this for interesting sometimes, read Matthew 435 to 935 because it's half Sermon on the Mount, half 10 miracles. It's clearly designed this way, sandwiched with these similar words on either end. The whole point, Matthew saying, take the whole Christ. Be blown away by his words. Nobody ever spoke like this man. And be blown away by his deeds. Nobody did miracles like this man. Other people did miracles, not like he did. So he's saying, I'm a, I've given you my word on this, and I've given you my deed on this. And you're asking me to speak more clearly. And he basically says, um, I'm not going to give you another figure of speech. I'm going to stay with the figure. And he says this, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, you want more? There it is. Notice three things. Number one, from that little unit that I just read. Notice number one, the Father has sheep, and it says, he gives them, the Father who gave them to me. So the Father gives the sheep into the hand of the Son and still has them in His hand. 
Verse 29, my father who has given them to me, so did he or didn't he? He did, he did, he gave them to me. Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So how are they in his hand if he's given them into the hand of the son? What does that imply? Here, I have them, son. Here they are. And nobody can snatch them out of this hand, the Father's hand. That's the first thing to notice. The second thing to notice is, verse 30, Jesus' explanation. I and the Father are one. This final answer that Jesus gives to, who are you? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. This, this final answer goes way beyond, I am the Messiah. I and the Father are one. We'll come back to that. Here's the third thing to notice. And this is one of those lessons I wanted you to look for. Um, the way Jesus explains his identity here is really remarkable. It's very informative to me as a pastor and how I handle biblical truth. The way he does it, the way he gets to I and the Father are one is by talking about I have you in my hand and I am so sovereign, nobody can get you out of my hand. I'm stronger than all. And my Father has you in His hand, and nobody can take you out of His hand, and He's stronger than all. So we are mutually omnipotent, and the Father has given you into my hand, and we are holding you together, and we are one. Now, here, here's the point. That's a huge theological statement which we have to wrestle with. I and the Father are one. But notice how he presented it. He presented it so that it makes all the difference in your life. If you believe it. So much theology is done in the abstract, right? It's kind of theory hanging in the air and trinity arguments and whatnot. And Jesus says, look, you want to hear me unpack the Father and I in relationship and oneness, it has to do with where you are in our hands and how safe you are there. That's the way he gets there. So I just want to say to myself, to the staff, to all of you, um, don't be afraid of, of theology. Don't be afraid of doctrine. Just be afraid of disconnected doctrine. Doctrine doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's just, an, just a point of argument. It's just blathering. If, if, if you can't see the relevance of a point of doctrine for you, you haven't seen it right. There are no irrelevant biblical truths about Jesus, about God, about salvation. And this little picture here of how he gets to I and the Father are one was a very great exhortation to me. John, if you're going to write books, if you're going to preach sermons, if you're going to lead lessons about 
weighty and heavy and glorious things, do it in a so what way. So what? I just think it just should be ringing in our ears. Does, does, do I see this clear enough so that it makes a difference for marriage and parenting and singleness and work, money, sex, politics, or, or, or are you just playing games? So that's the third thing I wanted you to notice from that section. So, point one, Jesus' answer to the question in verse 24 is yes. I am the Messiah, and I am infinitely more than the Messiah you're expecting. And all of that is infinitely relevant to your eternal safety. It's not abstract. Number two, their response to this answer, execution by stoning, had he not found a way to stop them. So let's see this. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So they looked like this. This is very, very tense. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Jesus answered him, the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. Well, something is clear here. The Jews, the listeners, understand the words, I and the Father are one, as blasphemous. Verse 33, blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So they're hearing, verse 31, I and the Father are one is blasphemy. That is making yourself God. Now, this is not the first time they said this. Let me read you John 5, verse 18. It goes like this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, that's the meaning of verse 33, you make yourself God. They don't mean you're making yourself out to be a God-like person, or you're making yourself out to be an angel. They're making him to say, you're equal with God. That's what it means to make yourself God. So their response is understandable. They're going to kill him. That's blasphemy. And 
Blasphemy is a capital crime, and so now we have a right, because we have it from his own mouth, that he is a blasphemer. And the question is, were they right? Have they interpreted his words truly, or did they miss it? And he wasn't saying that. I and the Father are one. Good grief. There are a dozen ways to take that that aren't blasphemous. I and the Father are one in purpose. I and the Father are one in action. I and the Father are one in affection. And on and on. What you getting, where are you getting blasphemy here? Piper could say that. So the question is, are they right? in accusing him of blasphemy. Is that what he said? And the answer is, you bet they're right. Because you don't, I hope you don't, you don't go to a sentence in a novel, in a newspaper article, or in a chapter of the Bible, pull the little sentence out and dangle it around and say, that could have 10 meanings. I'll choose this one. You don't do that. You put it right back in where it was. You look all around it and examine how that author was thinking. Say, which one of those does he want me to believe? And when you do that here, there's no question. Zero question in this gospel how John intends us to understand that sentence. So to show you that, I'll just give you six glimpses from other parts of the gospel Not to mention verse 18, like, I'm dead, I'll take my life back. (laughs) This is not something Piper could say. So we're not going there that this means, oh, they're just one in purpose and he's an ordinary man. No way. We're not going there. We're not going to assault this gospel by ignoring it. Six pointers to the fact that they were not mistaken. Jesus is claiming to be God. Number one, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. Number two, John 5, 19. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Nobody can say that. All of it. I mean, I can say some of it. Like the Father wants people saved. I try to get people saved. So I and the Father are doing the same thing. I could talk like that. But no human being can say whatever the Father does, that the Son does Likewise, that's just wild unless they are one in a much more profound way than I can be one. Number three, John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not only the time frame, I preexisted everything, but the words I am are the divine name. Number four, John 10, 18, we've seen. 
I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it up again. No mere man can say that. Number five, John 12, 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. It's reference to Isaiah 8, 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And John says when Isaiah saw that, he saw Jesus. That's what it says in John 12, 41. And lastly, John 20, 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus did not say, that's blasphemy. Worship God only. He said, did you have to see me to have that kind of faith? That's good faith. Bethlehem Baptist Church believes that this gospel and the whole Bible teaches the Jews were not mistaken when they said, you're making yourself out to be God. We just disagree that that's blasphemy. Now, they're about to kill him. They have rocks in their hands, and this is really tense. What's he going to do? Number three, section three. First, Jesus' answer. Second, the response to the answer. Third, Jesus' maneuver. I could be wrong about this. This is my take, so test it. Start reading in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? The I here now is God. I said, you are gods. And doesn't who the you are? I said, you are gods. Just some lesser being than God is called gods with a little g. I said, you are gods. If he, God, called them gods, little g, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated? He's talking about himself now. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated or sanctified, set apart for himself, and sent into the world? Do you say of him, you're blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. The reason I call this a maneuver of Jesus is because it doesn't lead to any conclusion. You can struggle with this all day long and say, well, where does that take us? It doesn't take you anywhere. It, it opens language a little bit, like watch out the word God can have a little G and can have a big G and whether you assign it A big G or little G better hang on more than just the word. But no, no, no answer. It doesn't settle anything. That's why I'm saying I think Jesus simply kept himself from getting killed by deflecting their attention onto this issue that leads to no firm conclusion about his deity or non-deity. 
He is the one the Father consecrated and sent into the world and is the Son of God. But this isn't any conclusive argument for it. So he bought himself some time. Let me, let me ask you about Psalm 82.6. Okay. Now, number four, what he does, the final invitation, what he does with this brief moment before they try to seize him is invite them one more time. This is relating to the question, is it too late for you? Because some of you, I've met people over the years who feel like they've heard gospel so many times, they've done so many wrong things, they've made so many starts and stops with Jesus that they feel like it's just over. I'm I'm an Esau, I'm a reprobate, it's too late for me. And if anybody, if it's too late for anybody, it's just too late for these guys in this text who keep pushing back on Jesus, pushing back. And And with stones in their hands, having bought himself just a few more minutes before he disappears, what does he say? What what would you say? (laughs) Here's what he says in verses 37 and 38. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, Believe the works so that you may know and understand. Now, pause there. I, I'm going to pull a rank on you here. I know this, I shouldn't do this, but it's the same word. Know and understand are the same Greek word. No, no. It's just gnosko, gnosko. Past tense, present tense, okay? Let me read it like that. At least, at least latch on to my works that you may come to know and then go on growing in knowledge. And maybe that's implicit in know and understand. That would be fine. So I, I want you to just get a start with some knowing and then go on in knowing. That you may know and go on to know more fully that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to seize him or arrest him and he escaped. It's gone. It's over. End. End of long Jerusalem since chapter 7. It's over. I'm out of here. That strikes me as incredibly patient. What I hear him saying is this, and I'm, I'm going to say it to you. If you have listened to Jesus' voice, you see what he says there? Even though you don't believe me, so there, that may be you. Like, I just, I'm not there yet. I, I, the person of Jesus does not compel me to sell my life to him. He says to you, then believe the works. Be be blown away by the works. Be at least a little bit amazed by what he does in the hopes that you might know and and then go on knowing and come, come. 
I just find that amazing. I mean, my personality is not that. I say, I'm done with you. I just, just, and he's willing to lower the bar and say, just at least look at one miracle. Look at the wine, the water to wine, and just be a little bit amazed. And think about that as you go home tonight. And, and maybe the Holy Spirit will take you through that. To, to me, I just find that really amazing because they've got rocks in their hands. Number five, the key to faith. So Jerusalem ended up badly, a lot of opposition, but I would have thought, you're done. John, if I were writing this gospel, I'm done, that's, a, that's done. And now, next chapter, Lazarus, resurrection from the dead. We're going to show some more of the glory of Jesus. Why verses 40 to 42? What? Why did you stick this in here? It is so quick and it is so geographically strange that you just kind of jump across the Jordan. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Now the story's over. See, John wasn't going to leave it with nobody believing. They're just trying to arrest him. That wasn't the whole story. Many believed. So I, what I, what, what my clue here is, what did you say about this setting that shows me the key? Is there a key here? Why did so many believe here and they weren't in Jerusalem? Is there a key here in these verses? And here's what I, I think he's doing. He draws attention to John the Baptist, who, who's dead now. But he worked here. And uh, a lot of people in that region followed him and listened to him. Because they're reporting here on what they remember about him. And, and evidently, there was something about their attachment to John, and they're listening to John, and their, their effect by John that they believed. What was that? What they say is, and this is what John chose to report, verse 41, John did no sign. Isn't that an odd thing to say? John did no sign. Unlike Jesus, who's sign, sign, sign. Consider my works. Look at my works. John didn't do any of that. But everything he said about this man was true. Here's my take. John's ministry was unpretentious. He didn't strive for fame. His mindset was one 
entirely another is coming. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the one sent. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. There he is, there he is. Look, look, look. Away from me to him. Away from me to him. Now, that's a mindset, a a humility, a self-effacing lowliness. And if you get excited about that kind of person, you're likely going to believe in Jesus because you've been broken. Something's happened. I think the key to faith is the Holy Spirit's work in our lives to make us fall out of love with being somebody. Make us fall out of love with fame. Fall out of love with, I've got to get attention. I've got to be liked. John the Baptist went a totally different direction, and the people who had been taken with John the Baptist, when Jesus shows up, they believe him. There are mindsets that set you up to believe and mindsets that set you up to be like the Jews in Jerusalem and say, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. What's the difference? They didn't need a sign. John didn't want to give them a sign. He didn't want to be anybody except a pointer. Look over there. Go over there. There he is. There he is. And they look at John. They say, you're an unusual human being. I like that. I want to be like that. And then you turn to Jesus and and you've been all set up psychologically to say, that's like that. I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So let me close um, by reading the words of John the Baptist. And as I read them, would you pray that these would be your words, that um, this would be your mindset? And I mean believers like me who who are 65 years old and all they can remember is believing in Jesus. I mean, I've been a Christian a long time, and I need to pray this. I need to fight this fight. So as I read these words, um, you join me in praying, God, that's the mindset that will help me to go deep in faith. Or if if you're a beginner, just help you to have faith. So here's, here's the words, and you remember these from two, year, two years ago. No, you don't, but you know they're in the gospel. This is John chapter 3, verses 28 to 30, and I remember preaching on it because I just loved it so much, and I love John the Baptist. He's one of my favorite human beings. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. This is the mindset that is the key to faith in Jesus. 
Is it yours? That's the question. Let's pray. So, Father, he must increase, I must decrease. He must be everything to me. He must be everything through me. Therefore, I invite you, and I'm sure hundreds are saying, we invite you to crucify everything in us that is not Christ-exalting, but self-exalting. Oh, Lord, kill our selfishness. Kill our craving for human acclaim, praise, and approval. Notice. And may we be like John who says, now my joy is complete because the bridegroom is coming for his bride. He has other sheep that are not of this fold and he's going to complete this bride from every people group on the planet and watching him do it is my joy. So Father, create a mindset in us that will enable us to profoundly trust you, profoundly believe in Jesus. I ask this in his name. Amen.